G'day and welcome to Dog Talk. I'm Dan Camilleri. And I'm Laura McKillop. We'd like to start by thanking Enduro for their ongoing support in bringing you our live weekly Q&A. Tonight we're fortunate enough to be speaking with Stan Hughes from Husanley Working Stock Dogs. Stan will be picking who he thinks has asked the best question of the night and they will win a bag of Enduro Plus high energy food for working dogs with real kangaroo meat. Hey Stan, how are you going? Hey Laura, good thanks. How's it Dan? That's yeah, the way. That's it mate. How was your day? Very good. Busy as always. You always got a bit of water up there today? Yeah, we've had rain for, what, yeah, five out of the last six days has rained here, but we haven't had the big rain yet that's supposed to be still coming. Mm. But very um, wet. So we'll jump, yeah, very I bet, yeah. We'll jump straight into it. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, where you're from? Yeah, last uh, September last year we just downsized properties. Um, a couple hundred acres uh, at Albini, which is just south of Oakey on the Darling Downs. Been around Oakey ever since I left school. And um, we run a few sheep, cattle, just a few cattle off the place as well. And uh, working with stock horses and the dogs. Do a bit with your horses too as well there, mate? Yeah, wife and I both camp draft. Um, she's the, the avid camp drafter. Yeah. We're very, very competitive between us. Do you, do you have a ratio? If she's allowed one horse, you've got four dogs or? No, just if she buys one, I buy one. Yeah. <laughs> no, very cool, mate. And where did your passion for livestock and working dogs come from? I think we've nearly got to get back to the 3rd of October, 1968. Let's, let's, I, let's um... start there, mate. <laughs> Yeah, um, my parents had a dairy farm on the far north coast of New South Wales, and that was the 3rd of October, 68. They had a clearing sale, sold the farm, and I made a, a um, commitment then to, to be a dairy farmer and buy that farm back as a seven-year-old. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to milk cows, and, and I, that's nothing changed. And in um, 1977... They, um, they bought the dairy farm on the Darling Downs and I got two younger brothers and age of 15, they said, go for it, dairy. Dad had, dad had muscular dystrophy, so he couldn't get around a lot. So it was left to us boys to do the farm work. And Mum and Dad were the brains behind the, the whole thing at the time. So. But in between that, they had a store on the coast um, in the hinterland of Tweed Heads and there was a, an old... Um, retired butcher come drover and he used to with a they had a store on on the crossroads and on there was a on the other side of the crossroads was a, a uh, dip yard and um so all the local you know stock owners had to dip their cattle in the summertime for ticks and they'd always come into that dip and i'd be watching them and this one fellow he had the team of dogs and he always be on his own and he'd bring those cattle in and there'd be a dog block on each road putting them in the dip and uh, i think that's you know i always had a love for livestock and that's my love for dogs you know always amazing what he could do yeah anytime there's a stray dog come around i was trained that to work cattle <laughs> <laughs> and then in 77 when they bought the dairy farm there was a four-month-old pup come with that which i immediately took on and trained and went trialing with yeah right so yeah. Obviously, you never considered doing anything else. Um, yeah. 
<laughs> well, if you weren't, if you didn't have dogs, mate, what do you yeah. think you would have done? Oh, I don't know. It's just I, I did have plans when I was going to school, you know, because I didn't, we didn't have a farm at that stage. I'd try and get into Gatineau College, yep. yep, study livestock management, that type of thing. But Dad, in particular, was dead against that. He said, "You learn by doing." So that's when they bought the farm. I think I was old enough to leave school. Yeah, and um, so we went there and did that, and we milked cows for thirty-five years then. I had some early mornings in that, mate. Yeah, a lot of them. Do you miss the early mornings? I oh, know I was still up here before daylight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so you mentioned um, there was a gentleman there that was blocking up the roads. Would you say he was the one that inspired you to, to get into working dogs, or was there, there someone else as well? I don't. I don't think so. Um, I just used to see what he did. Um, I had an uncle that used to train dogs and work draft horses and things. And so I've always had a love for that type of thing. Um, the dogs are just part of it. I've always wanted to work with cattle and with cattle come dogs. And then when we got the dairy farm and I had that pup, I trained it up and I always thought she was fairly handy dog. In 1980, I think it was, um, the Oakey show schedule come out and the cattle dog trial in there and I said I'm going in for a look so I went in and met a few people and they all said why didn't you bring a dog so next year I went back with a dog and went back with that blue pup that would come with the dairy farm and uh, yeah I got got second in the novice trial oh, there's only, there only three trials in Queensland then and I got second at all three novice trials that first year with that That's dog all right, isn't it? with the same dog same dog and um, Crow's Nest was the last trial. They had used to have the three trials over two months. And that uh, Crow's Nest trial, I got second with the the blue dog and fourth with a six-month-old pup. Yeah. And you said blue dog, mate. Was she was she a cattle dog or what? Tell us about yeah, that she dog. was she was looked she looked like a Kelpie, yep. but she was all blue to look at. And um, she'd naturally block. Um, yeah, she won an open cattle dog trial eventually. Had a lot of pups. Um, yeah, she was a, she was the first real dog I trained, I suppose. Yeah, and there's a fair few pictures there in the background. Um, has your enthusiasm for your dogs passed through to your kids? Oh, they all enjoy the animals, but no one's taken it on seriously yet. Yeah, <laughs> the three older girls are all you know flown the coop and married and. Or, or working away from home and young fella coming on here well he loves the dogs he's got his floppy dog but anyone knows the stop stock dog page i've got they've all seen pictures of him <laughs> yeah yeah and mate in your time have you noticed you've obviously seen you know um between the cattle and, and sheepdog trials and um been around different handlers have you noticed a change in the way people handle stock um and dogs and, and is it for the better um i don't know there's, there's there's been changes good and bad um there's a, a lot of i think a lot of it is too much of a hurry these days a lot more of it's done on bikes rather than horses which has sped things up um which i think has been to the detriment of the dog but um yeah in saying that there's a lot more knowledge about today too that's available and you know, and those that are willing to pick that up have done and it's you know, that's been for the for the benefit of the livestock industry um, but one of the downsides I think from bikes is is um, 
the number of dogs that are carted around on bikes these days and haven't got to travel on foot and therefore there's been a lot of um, the travelling ability has been lost on a lot of dogs. Yeah, the staying staying power because they're just taken out to the paddock, put off, put a, put a stock together, and then put back on the bike. Yeah. Um, so that's just one. I've noticed that myself of dogs that have come into me over the years and we've gone to do a job and they've you know quit halfway through, where there's other dogs will keep going. It's just something I think everybody needs to be more aware of today. And you yourself, obviously having the horses, do you do much on horseback or? Yeah, it's all done on horseback. We don't own a bike now. Yeah. Not that we're covering big areas anymore, but but yeah, we've always, you know, even when we dairied, yeah, you know, had a horse and we used to take, you know, dry cows away and, and go up and cut springers out and bring them home with horse and dog. All the yard work was done with dogs, just one person and a dog. And away, and away from the dog sort of that, mate, from a handler point of view, um, is, have you noticed the change in the way handlers? You mentioned a lot of schools and and um, stuff out there, so educational-wise. Mm. Has that been for the better? Oh, yeah. The, the schools are a wonderful thing. There's quite a few people running them. Um, and the more knowledge that's passed around, the, the better that's going to become. And, and there seems to be a lot more willingness, too, to take on the knowledge these days. Um, but like all things, some people pick it up quick, some don't. Um, so, yeah, the nat, um, so those with natural stockmanship are able to pick that sort of thing up fairly quick. Yep. And you've got got people who, you know, it's just not in them genetically to, to have that ability. They've got other classes going for them. But, um, yeah, that, that side of things and, you know, the trials it's about has really the standard of trials have lifted, lifted so much since I started. Um, it's just phenomenal, the, the standard now compared to what it was 40 years ago. Yeah, right. And and you mentioned there that, like, some people caught on things quicker than others, um, and you yourself doing a few working dog schools. Those people that don't seem to caught on as, as quick as the others, that don't have that natural gift for stockmanship, how, how do you try and convey that message across to them? <clears throat> um, I think it's getting them... Spending time with them one-on-one, um, watching them or demonstrate it for them and then um, getting them in there, have a go and just you know, pointing out how they could do it better and, and um, drawing pictures on whiteboard. I've found after we, we, we start the school off, we start with a bit of a talk and you know, a half hour our lesson on the whiteboard and different things like that and then you go and demonstrate and then come back to the whiteboard and that seems you see a lot of uh light bulb moments then yep when you've sort of they've been out there had a go and come back and, and draw pictures again i think that helps a lot yeah. but you know it's just getting in there seeing it happen and um having a go themselves and then watching someone else do it no way to learn like getting your hands dirty right that's right. Yeah. Yep. And so, what type or style of dog do you prefer? Oh uh, well, I, I've always had border collies, other than that blue dog. When I went to that cattle dog trial in nineteen eighty one, with the first competition, I went back the next year with the same dog, and one of the first fellows I met there was a fellow by the name of Kevin Martin, and he said. 
you want to get yourself a border collie that'll bite the nose. So I was talking to a fellow there at the trial, and he had pups coming along soon. So I ordered one that was going to cost me a hundred dollars. Yeah. I went on that afternoon and told Dad, and he said, "I'll." Oh, bloody mad spending that money on a dog <laughs> <laughs> he went back to the oaky show the next day and he met neighbor there and neighbors got dogs for pups for sale for twenty dollars you can go and get them now <laughs> so, <laughs> i went down and got this twenty dollar dog and um yeah he just it just so happened that he was out of the mother of the fellow who was at the trial and had pups for me yeah so, so a full brother sister yeah wow right? anyway he just turned out he's a dog that made a name for me and his name was des and um yeah he, he won australian championships in 83. good year yeah <laughs> he placed three times three consecutive years in the queensland championships placed second to the same dog um oh yeah so i had 250 pups yeah, yeah wow. won a lot of trials. Yeah. $20 dog still? Yeah. But, you know, that he was a dog that bit both ends, and that's the sort of dog that I've sort of tried to breed, something that bites and shifts stock. That's been my number one criteria. They must be able to shift stock. Yeah. And then we, you know, look for how they do it and whether we can do it in a controlled manner and that type of thing. Um, but, yeah, silent dog, bite when required. But yet can keep mob keep cattle together. Now, and you main, like mainly work with cattle. So just now we've got a few sheep here, and we're you know working with sheep as well. But over the years we've always had cattle. And you still got a bit of that blood in your current team? Yeah, that it's still there. I've mucked yeah. around some other bloodlines now too, but um, that there's still dogs that go back to to theirs. And there was another uh, bitch gibberidgee ring. They had late 80s, early 90s, and um, they all, she's probably got more influence going forward to, to today than what Des did have. Yep. And, and you want to tell us a little bit about your current team? Yeah, I'll, there's a bit of variation there. I've, I've, I went down to the Tamworth trial those two, two years, I had the trial at Tamworth there. End up yeah. buying the first dog that was offered in the auction, the first pup, which was a full UK bred dog or bitch. And so I wanted to introduce something different. That that pup that there's he had a lot of imported bloodline in him from the UK from years earlier. So I wanted to go back to that sort of line again. So I mucked around with that. And then I end up buying a full sister to her. Um and then they're, they're a fairly strong influence in the line there at the moment. Um, plus my original border collies, but they're all a little bit different in different ways. I think um, it's good to have a little bit of difference in the dogs. They complement each other when working. Yeah, absolutely. And then you go to a trial, there's always different types of cattle and different, they've been handled differently and some not handled much at all. So you always want a different type of dog. Yeah. One dog that does well in one trial won't do so well in the next trial as a rule. Yeah. Try and keep yourself consistent, right? Yep. Yeah. Uh, question here from Bill Crattersman. What do you think of the ISDS blood introduced into Australian dogs? Is it a step forward or a step backwards? 
as a general rule, it, it's hard to comment on that and, and that there's different variations, you know, some dogs good. The two I've got here have been a benefit to me. I've seen some other lines that have been good. I'm still chasing some some different blood from that way. But, um, but that comes back to what you want. That What I've noticed about those ISDS line of dogs is that they've got a lot of forward, you know, they're very forward type dogs, full on, and perhaps don't suit the um, three sheep type situation but they i think very um got a lot to offer for cattle which is what i'm more interested in yeah but um yeah there's a there's a big benefit there i think but like all breeds of dogs and lines of dogs you gotta be careful which ones you take on yeah uh, absolutely right and you mentioned there about biting on both ends um tom williams has asked do you like heel in your dogs and how important is it for me, it's a must. And having a dairy background, if you don't have a healing dog, you don't shift stock. Uh, yeah. And it's a surprising over the years, the number of dogs I've sold to people. And I remember an old fellow at Charters Towers telling me, Brahmins want wooing, not shooing. So I don't want any heel bite. He ended up with a dog from me that did bite the heel on occasions. And he reckon it was the best thing ever. <laughs> Just, yeah. I, um, once stock are turned, a heel bite then to drive them in the right direction can be beneficial. But if it happens too often and too much heel bite, it's probably worse than having none. But um, you know, that dog I mentioned a while ago, Gibberjee Ring, when I first bought her, she would put a herd of dairy cows in a laneway and couldn't move them because she just couldn't she couldn't drive stock. Yep. And, um, she ended up in a trial at Gatton one day with a beast giving her a lot of trouble and she, I think, healed out of frustration. And from that day on, she healed and become yeah. a complete, com she was a complete dog then. And it's surprising how much heal she she passed on into in her progeny as well. Yeah, right. So it was always there, just needed a kickstart. Kick yeah, yeah. Which she was, <laughs> that's right. She was a dog that can sheep in a sheepdog trial for me. Um, won two Queensland Championships, placed every year in the Queensland Championships and that she competed and had progeny, you know, placed with her. So she was a, you know, good dog. Yep. Uh, Steely Kennels asked, in the long successful uh, career with working dogs, how have they changed in your time and do you think that they are moving forward in the right direction? Yeah, I'll, I'll from a trialing perspective, the standard is totally different to what it was when I first started. Um, you go to a trial and there might have been 10 or 15 dogs in it and there's probably only two or three that would win consistently, place consistently, where today you could go to a trial and it could be any one of you know 20 or 30 dogs. The standard has really improved. And like the standard of handling the dogs, the training has improved which has helped the dogs, I think. So, yeah, yeah. it's gone a long way. And, and just on that there, um, you mentioned the standard in dogs and trialling and obviously still using dogs for work and you see if you're around. Then you hear the old, oh, trial dogs don't make good work dogs, right? What's, we got a smile there, so are you expecting that? I've heard that a lot. Huh. Yeah. 
in my case, I breed dogs for what I want to do. And yes. that's for paddock, paddock work. And I trial the dogs that I work. Now, I've, I've seen dogs in the trial ground that have probably never worked in the paddock much. And I've had people come to me saying, I bought a dog off so-and-so and it's only ever been on the trial ground and it's it's not, you know, it's useless. But I think that comes back to the experiences more than anything. If a dog's only ever worked three head, then it doesn't know how to work a mob. Um, and then you've got, I think it's probably more applicable to three sheep trialling where you, it takes a Pacific dog to handle three flighty sheep. But you put those into a mob of 500, they're totally different to handle. Yep. So, um, you know, it's sort of horses for courses a bit. Yeah. And on that note, is there an old dog that you'd like to have back? Oh, I'd love to have that first dog back. <laughs> the first one. There's the border collie, first border collie dog. Yeah. He yeah. was a, a dog that just didn't matter what bitch you made him to, you got good pups, you know. He was very potent that way. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were talking about first about the blue dog. I thought, no. oh, he's got, let's, go back to, let's go back to his Kelpies. <laughs> no. I won't do that, Dan. <laughs> so why, uh, oh mate, I'm not dog racist. I, I like anything as long as it kind of ticks a few boxes for me. I'll, we do I'll have a crack. And we do have a kelpie here. Yeah, what? Mate, that, was, what? That, was my, what? that was my next question, mate. What, why the collies? Oh, probably because it's just what I ended up that first dog I bought. The first fellow I met at a dog trial suggested I get a board of collie that bit the nose, and I ended up with a good one. So I've gone on with that. And I've basically had what I've wanted, I suppose, most of the time. Yes. Had the type of dog I wanted. Um, and, yeah, I think from my own perspective on cattle, the collie has a little bit more bite and less noise than what the Kelpie has as a general rule. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen some pretty good Kelpies over the years, particularly in North Queensland. Um, yeah. But as a general rule, as a breed Pacific, I think collies are better suited to the cattle work from the point of view of, you know, a bit of extra bite and, and no noise. I just won't tolerate noise. Yep. And why is that? Oh, well, cows and calves and um, I just I just don't like barking dogs and cows and calves, it stirs them up and, you know, I work my dogs on cows and calves. They've got to work everything. So bark then always causes problems. Yeah, no, that's fair enough, mate. And just what we're there, we're talking. Laura asked you, is there an old dog you'd like to get back? Who would it be? What about someone else's dog? If there was someone else's dog out there you'd like to inherit, who would it be and why? Yeah, I've never seen that. <laughs> I'm always looking. No, that's looking fair enough. Yeah, I'm always looking for something and I find it very hard to find something that I like. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't think there's really a dog about that I would have, you know yeah um and no that's okay <laughs> um and what do you believe makes a good sheep dog versus cattle dog i think a sheep dog is it's more of a necessity to have a bit more you know feel or um distance off the stock where um yeah the basics is is the principle i think is the same but a cattle dog's got to be able to get in and handle some pretty tough cattle. And, you know, in the places where I've been selling dogs all over Queensland, 
and some of those are pretty rough places and big places and cattle don't get handled a lot. So they've got to have a bit more um, go about them. But sheep, from my experience, my limited experience with sheep, you want a dog that is you know, probably a bit more natural casting and herding and heading. Um, not that you don't need that with a cattle dog either, but it's, it's more of a necessity with sheep, I think. And you want that dog that's got a bit more feel, ideally. Yeah, yeah you so get to buy with, with, without that feel, but ideally, you need that. Yeah. And so what is feel to you? Just the dog's ability to know when they're close enough to shift cattle or shift stock, I should say. Yeah. Um, I've got that uh, dog Floppy here at the moment. He's always been a bit soft on cattle and I haven't bred with him a lot. But he's a mate. Well, I, I think he's a great sheepdog. He just doesn't upset stock. He could bring in lambs and ewes and walk. He'll bring in sheep from you know, any distance. And he just seems to be able to approach stock without upsetting them and, and move sheep. You know, he's got a hundred in a cattle dog trial too, but um, yeah, right. he's, he's just a bit soft on cattle. But having yeah. said that, he's, he's bred some fairly strong dogs. So I'm, I've never bred, bred with him a lot for that reason. He's just been a bit soft, but he's seven or eight year old now. And I've just really realised in the last 12 months that the pups that are around by him are pretty strong. I've got one bitch here by him and, and uh, yeah, she's a, a very strong cattle dog. When you say soft, you just mean that he's a bit too nice to his stock sometimes? Yeah, he um, doesn't have the heart to, to, to get in and have a go. Yep. Uh, but, you know, I've seen him, the brains he's got and the position he's on the stock is just always spot on. You know, he just knows where the pressure point is, you know, what pressure to put on. But just when the crunch comes at times, he'll, he'll you know, can't take the, the hard punches. Doesn't have that banyard like. Yeah. And, you know, an example of that I've used a few times at schools is uh, I had took four dogs for a run one day, found some wieners, wieners out in a paddock where they shouldn't have been against some tall crop. I just sent all four dogs to bring these wieners back and only three dogs come back with the wieners that I could see. I cursed Floppy and anyway, started moving off. And when I look back, here he is bringing two more out of the crop that yeah. you couldn't see. You know? So he does that sort of thing. You know? Yeah. You so can't, teach, can't teach that. Do you think sometimes that feel and eye holds him up in terms of strength? I wouldn't call it. Uh, he hasn't got. To, he hasn't got a lot of eye. Yeah. But he just he just seems to be able to feel the stock and possibly. I had another dog back in the late nineties, and he also scored a hundred in a cattle dog trial, and he he was a bit similar. That um, not not enough heart, I would call it strength but always in the right place uh, always in doing the right thing you know if he yes I'd, I'd send him out in the dark of the morning to get the milking cows in and go and get the dairy ready and when he got back to the yard i knew every cow was there yeah. if he didn't come back then i knew there was a problem somewhere or, or you know um he was still getting cattle in but um, you know, I could take him two k over the other side of the property, just drop him off and go home. And when he got home, I knew all the cattle were there. There was not never anything left in the paddock. Or if there was a cow and calf, 
you know, a new calf somewhere and we go looking for it, he would find the calf for me, that type of thing. And, you, you know, you can't teach that sort of thing, really. It's just natural. No, but absolutely. Here's a dog I didn't breed with a lot either because I just felt he wasn't strong enough. Dan, mate, you've mentioned there, you know, same dogs working cattle and sheep a few times. Mate, do you believe there are many genuine all-round dogs around? They are, yeah, but not a lot of them. Yep. In my opinion, I've, I've been lucky to have a couple of them, I think. Yeah. Um, not, not, there's, there's, yeah, I've got a young dog here now that works sheep and cattle. Um, he can be, he's a better cattle dog than a sheep dog and he does the job on sheep, but he's not, a, I wouldn't call him a genuine all rounder, you know. He doesn't do it, doesn't do the sheep work as well as the cattle work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but they're about. And, so you said that you've bred a few pups over the years. Are you still breeding many? Yeah, there's pups on their way tonight. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's um, we probably have you know, well, I think from three to five or six litters a year. Yep. And what are you looking for when considering future joinings? Oh, just something that will do the job that I'm. I'm, you know, I'm wanting a dog for. So if if neither parent, you know, sire or dam, or is what I working the way I want, then um, you know, I, I won't. Well, I won't keep anything I breed with. Uh, I, I don't breed with. But um, yeah, they just got about number one, shift stock. Two, be able to keep stock together. You know, and of course they've got a head and herd first type of thing, but. So they just, if they can't do the job for me, I won't breed with them. But if they, you know, doing the job and I think they might complement one another, then we'll do that joining. Yeah. yeah. And, mate, just on that, I actually, Dylan Edwards, I apologise, I just stole your thunder. We're just looking for a question. He just wrote, asked that question. So let's pretend that he asked that <laughs> question. So I just, oh, yeah. I just uh, stole his What's thunder. Yeah, rare enough. <laughs> And are you seeing those desired qualities coming through in your litters? Well, I guess I am. I wouldn't be doing it if I wasn't wasn't yeah. seeing. Them. But um, there's always disappointments at times. Doesn't yeah. matter how how good or you know dam or sire is. There's always occasional disappointment. I just I sold a dog on the weekend. Um, I I bought the bitch. At the Tamworth sale, um, I made her back to a, a full UK. She was full UK bred, ISDS type breeding. I made her back to a, a dog that was of the same, you know, full yeah. ISDS dog. And she had five pups, and I waited for 12 months for a couple of them to show any interest. And because I'd planned the joining for a while, I really liked the, the dog in the UK that um, the sire was by. So I persevered with that, and the one I kept for myself, he's three-year-old in July, and he's probably right now, as a three-year-old, nearly as good as anything of bread, I think. But I had to wait three years. Mm. So um, there's a there's disappointment there. Uh, I don't want to wait three years for a dog to show his potential, but that's just an indi uh, one occasion where it probably was worth waiting. Yeah. 
On that note, um, Steely's asked, what are the key elements you look for in a pup and at what age um, must they show them to you um, that make you decide whether they are looking... What you're looking for yeah. in a good dog. Hmm. As a general rule, I won't wait more than 10 or 12 months for them to you know, show me what I want. Um, yeah. But, you know, like all of us, we want to see see what we've got as young as possible. Um, we'll try and, um, you know, from probably eight weeks of age onwards, we'll start introducing them to the stock you know, every two or three, four weeks, whatever time allows, and just see what happens. Um, but, you know, I like to see from the start what's, what the pup's going to do, and, and that doesn't usually change much. Um, but then, and you, you know, Sorry. No, you're right, Kigar. Yeah, once they get to that 10 or 12 months of age, you, you know, if they're not showing interest, then, you know, I lose interest too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I can appreciate that. And you mentioned before about, um, you know, clean heading and get to the head. Mate, how important is heading ability to you to yourself? Yes, number two after being able to shift stock. You know, yeah. So, probably that should be number one but i've always worked on the theory that if if doesn't matter what the dog is if he can shift stock is useful you can use him some way yeah but if he can't shift stock then he's of no use to you yeah so that's but then enough. you know once they start you know they've got the ability to shift stock well then they've got to be able to head and, and herd together that's mm -hmm. and, and then hopefully that's you know they'll heal as well as in the future but that heading and herding is for, you know, first Absolutely, because there's still a lot of people around that actually don't really like heading dogs. They just find them frustrating. Uh, I've had some funny experiences over the years. Uh, people ringing up saying the bloody dog's always in the wrong place. It's always at the front of the stock and it's always in the gateway. And you try telling them to swap places and think you're mad. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know what you. No, I know what you mean. It's it's. It's an education process and changing from perhaps what you know people grew up to say with a blue dog, and they've learned to work with that. And then you, it's a whole new experience working with a heading dog. Definitely. Um, you mentioned before uh, you use an outside sire. Um, what are you looking at before you pick those sires? I just, well, ability to shift stock again. Um, yeah. And I like to see that work on a few different types of stock to see if they can, you know, what if they can handle different situations. Um, and then, if as long as that, you know, how how they handle the stock, whether they, whether they, and that heading ability is there and um, ability to hold stock together again. Um, and then if they're related, well, then that's all the better. Related to something I've got. But yeah, a bit yeah. of more common blood. Yeah, I'm always on the lookout, but off, you know, the few and far between what I what I would really like. That's fair enough. Um, Janine Keeley's asks, are there any special attributes you look for when choosing a pup? Oh I look I'd go on type and colour it until they start working, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I always try to avoid white faces and white eyelids and things like that and that's something that first collie dog had a bit of bit of that i tried to steer clear of but um until they start working it's just you know mainly instinct i've just had a litter of pups here 
recently that they're six months old now and I sent I picked one out for myself based on what I've just said type and the outgoing nature I like the top, like the pup as a pup I sent one out then to another lady to handle and it's come back and it's showing better working ability than the one I've kept so now I've got the dilemma of which one do I pick? Yeah. So that sort of thing happens, you know. Yeah. I had another one here prior to that, a litter that um, there was one pup there. I just hated him. I didn't like his temperament. Couldn't get along with him. No one wanted him. Every time someone would come and pick up a pup, I don't want that one. And I had a lady wanted one for a pet and there was two pups left. And she'd come, and I thought she'll take that one for sure because the other, the other <laughs> one that was left was a, a, a smaller pup. And now she took the smaller pup. <laughs> <laughs> then I had a, a, a lady here one day that she wanted to see how I start a pup. So what would I do the first time I put a pup in with the stock? So I picked up this pup and put it in the pen, and it just went to work, and it just did everything right. <laughs> so I started to like it fairly quickly. <laughs> yeah. Mate, and um, what's your opinion on influence? Do you think that a uh, sire has more influence over um, a pup or a litter than the bitch, or a bitch has more influence over over the litter? No, I don't think there's any difference. You just get more, you know, a, a bitch or a dog that's more potent type of thing, pass on the, the ability perhaps better than another one. Um, you know, like that first dog I had that Des didn't matter what you made him to, you got good pups. Um, I had a grandson of his that was a really good sire as well, Morse. Um, he sired, was a sire and grandsire of Australian Championship winners. But um, he was a different style of dog to, to Des a bit, but just a real good cattle dog. Yeah. Uh, so I think and that's, you know, there's the more influence was comes through just whether you know how um potent they are and when you say potent, do you mean like um a bit overzealous in, in areas no just on whether they, they pass on their genetics you know how they how you, you get a That's real good role sometimes and they just don't pass the genetics on um and then then if they if you got a side that's like that well then a bitch's influence might come through more or if you've got a bitch that's like that, the size influence might come through more. But um, so I don't think as a general rule there is a difference with dogs. Now, while I think the female line is important, I don't think there's, you know, as far as continue, continuing a line through, but as far as influence on a particular litter, I don't think there is a lot of difference. Yeah. Cool. And moving forward, are there any particular traits you want to put into your pups? That I haven't got. Yeah, I, I, I'm still, I'm always looking for a little bit more herding and uh, herding ability and that probably feel. I'm always, I want, I want to try and improve that a bit more to have the ultimate dog. Um, I'm always looking, always hoping. Yeah. <laughs> You and a million others, right? Yep. But <laughs> <laughs> and mate, do you have an opinion on um, AI um, with dogs that are, you know, been dead for some years compared to live coverage? Oh, 
in most cases, I, I wouldn't mind having some, some semen from that des now. Yeah. But um, if you look at other livestock, like, you know, I bred dairy cows for 35 years and you kept looking for new sires because the genetics are supposed to be better. They're being tested all the time and proven to be better than the last generation. So from a lot of aspects, if you're going backwards, you know, 10, 15 years, you should be going backwards in genetics as well. Because yeah. if, if your breeding program is right, you should be getting better dogs. So yeah. if you're going back back to older dogs, then you're saying you're, you're what you've bred since are not up to the mark. But having said that, there's always exceptions to every rule and, and sometimes in, in breeding, bringing a, a, an older dog back into a line at some stage could, could be beneficial. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. A question here from Janelle Woodridge. Um, what are your thoughts on adding a different breed, e.g. Bull Terrier, um, to a dog to bring out some stronger bite to the nose? Do you think this is necessary in the breeds we have today? First of all, not no to the last part of it if you handle your stock properly usually that extra bite that they're looking for is because the stock aren't handled enough but when you start introducing other breeds into say border collies or kelpies then you've got to know which pup to pick and you're going to have to keep the whole litter to find out which one has inherited the bite that you're looking for yeah. and the brain you know the brain as well because you're introducing a lot of variation then Absolutely. Um, you know, I had a, a bit to do with Scott Lithgow when he, he wrote the book on training dogs and um, running around Queensland giving talks and demonstrations on, you know, on working dogs. And he had a, a line of dogs that were made up of three breeds and he had refined it over you know, many years of breeding. Unfortunately, he... Um, passed away too soon long before you know before he should have done but it would have been really interesting to see where that ended up but um no one's really continued his line on yep. so on that note uh joe levens actually said hi stan i enjoyed a chat with you at a recent trial about your association with scott lithgow if you have time tonight um i would enjoy you sharing the impact he had on working dogs in queensland and what type of gentleman he was yeah, um, <coughs> he was very knowledgeable dog man. He, he lived and breathed dogs and breeding. Um, he went into into breeding, uh, you know, really in depth. Um, I was never fortunate enough to actually see one of his talks, but I did compete against him in trials. And when we formed the Queensland Working Cattle Dog Trial Association, he was at that inaugural meeting and suggested that. We make it a state organisation, not just a local club, which has you know, been a big benefit since. But um, terrific dog trainer, really understood dog's mind. Um, he did things a little bit different now with uh, hand signals, and I've sort of followed that on, but you see a lot of people now um, block their dogs with their arm or hand to direct the dog back the other way where he always pointed to where he wanted the dog to go and i've always done that as well um 
he had a lot of a lot of good dogs um and i just think if he had been around a lot longer i think he was only about 60 when he died and um he could have done, done a lot more for the industry we would have been a lot wiser for it but um yeah, yeah he did a lot to promote the the, the working dog in queensland um did a lot of traveling and talking at them at shows and on radio that type of thing i don't know where that answers that yeah no, that yeah. answered really well mate yeah and there's another question here from uh dylan edwards uh what's your opinion on body confirmation and how they are put together um well it's important from the point of view point of view of long longevity it's um it's not high it's getting higher on my list now but initially i i always looked at ability first and type come second but i think once you know i've sort of established the line now and so type comes into it a bit more but it's i think it's important from the point of view of longevity in the dog traveling ability um it's, it's got to help help those sort of things yeah um, you know, then you've got to look at you know i had a, a dog hector he was a big heavy bone dog but he didn't travel well and i think you know some of those heavier type dogs don't travel as well so you got there's a, there's a trade-off there as well you know you have a big strong dog but you may not travel a lighter dog might go all day there's lot, yeah there's a lot of tucked up dogs that can just you can just see they, yeah. they can travel a lot put yeah. miles on them but having said that you know that again that the floppy dog i mentioned a while ago um He's a dog that never knocks himself around. He doesn't overwork himself. He doesn't overwork the stock. And he'll be going a lot longer than a dog that, you know, is tending to overwork stock and um, flat out one minute and sitting in the shade the next minute. <laughs> yeah. so that, that type of thing, I think, is important to look at that. And what advice would you give to someone um, about to purchase their first pup? Yeah, well, they just got to know what they want in their mind first of all. I think that's fairly important, and you don't see that enough yet. But yeah, I'll get people come and see me or ring up and say, "I want a pup." Well, the first thing I say, "Well, what do you want to do?" So they've got to know that themselves. Um, you know, how do they work their stock? If they're driving stock all the time, well, they don't want a heading dog, do they? And, yeah, and that's right. Vice versa. You know, so they need to know in their own mind how they work their stock, what sort of stock they're working, whether Brahmins as against Angus, which is totally different to handle in my opinion. But um, yeah, know what they want, and then look for someone who is breeding the type of dog that they want, and um, you know, go and see them working. If you can't see them working, then don't buy there. Yeah. But yeah, and you know talk to the breeders that they know or talk to someone who might know a breeder that you know works the way they do um, i don't recommend buying looking at trial dogs and you know trialing going to trials and looking at dogs unless you go to a few trials and see that same dog working a few different types of cattle or different places and different um, conditions yep um, Try and stand working in the paddock, doing what they do at home. Yeah. Some great advice there, mate. Mm. 
Uh, Daniel Lenzos asks, do you think stamina is both physical fitness um, or also yeah. genetics playing a big part? No, it's both. Yeah. Yeah. It's you know, fit. They've, they've got to be conditioned to things, you know, just like you or I. If we're not conditioned to a certain job, we'll tire quicker. But also genetics yeah. come into it, you know. You, you and I could probably run marathons all day, but we're not going to compete with the uh, people running in the Olympics. We, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm not bred to do it. <laughs> I've tried that. <laughs> mate, and just getting on to some um, training questions here. Um, mate, what kind of stock do you like to start your pups on? Yeah, quite. I don't think the, the, the breed of stock is important, but they need to be quite well-handled stock. You know, for the first probably 20 years, I never trained on dairy cows, and calves, dairy heifers, bucket red calves that quite get in amongst them, um, be able to, you know, position your dogs. The same with sheep. If you haven't got quite sheep, goats, it, it doesn't matter what they are, I don't think, as long as they are very quiet. Yeah. It's, I guess, the critical thing. And Steely's asked here, when starting pups, could you explain the key to maintaining the right frame of mind for the training session and the key points slash triggers on when to apply pressure and how much in your experience? Can you start that again, please? <laughs> yeah, that's all right. When starting pups, could you explain the key to maintaining the right frame of mind for the training session? And then I'll ask the second half after that. Yeah, um well not too much pressure keeping the lesson short i'm running these schools i'll tell someone go in there give me a two-minute lesson with your pup and 10 minutes later you've got to tell them to, to stop working because the pup's buggered um they don't realize how long they've been there it's probably yeah. one of the lessons i learned from scott lithgow too i remember uh going to a practice day and scott was there and i've worked with a young dog and he, I come off and I was pretty pleased with the way the dog went. And he said, your dog went well, but you were out there way too long. <laughs> so yeah. uh, just made me think about it then. As a young father, you don't think about that. But yeah, yeah just keeping lessons very short um, and let them have fun. But let them do it correctly. You know? Yeah. The second half of that question was, um, the key points or triggers on when to apply pressure and how much pressure in your experience? That comes back to the individual pup, I think. Um, you know, one dog can take pressure that another dog can't. One dog might be putting a lot of pressure on the stock, so you've got to use a bit more pressure on on that dog. I think the key there is when, when and how you do it. Um, I use a... A stick with a bag on it just a feed bag plastic feed bag and that makes a noise as well as it's a a uh, block physical block as well i find yeah. that noise you know with a soft temperamented pup you don't need to make much noise but if you've got an aggressive pup or pup that's overzealous um you can use that bag a lot more so it's knowing and reading your pup and knowing what you know when to apply pressure and that all comes back to the individual um very hard to say how much and when you know, without seeing the individual dog yeah 
Yeah, absolutely, mate. And, and on that, and knowing they're all individuals, mate, how much time would you put into training um, a dog or a pup, like in different stages? No idea. No? <laughs> they're all different. Um, it's just some dogs, and that comes back to you know, what time I have available too, but, you know, some dogs you might, I've got a one here now that as a young dog, he could take a fair bit of training, just that type of dog. But another one, you might just give him short lessons and put him away for a couple of weeks, another short lesson until, until his mind matures more. Um, you, you've got a, a young, quick maturing dog, they can take a lot, you know, training, a fair bit of training young. Um, but as an average, um, I'd, just short lessons, three, four days a week, ideal. I think it's very important for them to have a break. You know, if you just train every day for three weeks, you'll make it a very stale pup very quick. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they just, they need, and I'll have that happen at the schools here, that people will say, you know, how often do you think I should work this dog? And I think every dog is a bit different. But as a general rule, you know, five days a week, a couple of short lessons a day, make sure they have yeah. a couple of days off. And as they get older, you know, they, as when they're younger, they might only be two or three days a week. As they get older, more mature, you can increase that training. But that's every individual is different. Yeah, absolutely. And what is your ideal training setup? Do you start in a round yard, a small yard, or outside? I like a, a controlled environment, um, round yard. I've got one here now, um, 15 metres across in diameter. Yeah. Um, and as soon as that dog can control the, the stock, calves I use here um, so they can head and herd got the idea of holding them together I get them out of there into the open uh, I like to get a bit of a stop on them but um, yeah I'll take them out and then put them back in and do different things like that through the yards but um, the other one I wouldn't mind adding there is I see a lot on Facebook these days people letting pups go in a yard or around pen or and they just put them in there and let them go. And I think it's very important that when you put a pup in there for the first time, you make it happen correctly. So they learn to go around their stock and, and, and herd. Once you put something in and just let it go, you've got, then got to correct any problems. So yep. they pick up a habit pretty quick. And um, I think if you can, can I, I believe myself anyway, if I put up eight weeks, 10 week old pup, whatever it is, in that round pen for the first time, I will control how it approaches the stock. Lead them round and round both ways and just make sure that they get the art of going round rather than straight at. Yep. I think that's um, important. And you've mentioned um, fuel there a few times tonight, and you mentioned there putting a stop on your dog. Mate, how important are good brakes? And you put a big emphasis on a stop? Yeah, it's a must. Um, the better the stop is, the quicker the, the stop is, is made good, the quicker training goes, I think. Because uh, when things go wrong and you can put your stop on, you can then correct things much quicker. Yeah. That's, that, start, that starts at seven, seven weeks for me. And how do you go about putting that stop on your dogs? Especially so young. Yeah, I, I've... I've followed Tony McCallum a bit. Yep. Um, 
in, in um, more in recent years of read about his methods and and uh, I did have the privilege of meeting him in 1988 um, and, and I did compete against him but um, yeah I think one of his things is, is you start at seven weeks for, for five or six weeks and um, I find that really works and just having the pup with you taking it for walks on its own you stop it stops make it sit Another Scott Lithgow thing is, is walking around the dog. So you, as you walk around in a circle, you know, 360 degrees around the pup, you can control the pup. And at seven or eight weeks of age, they don't get so um, overawed with you walking around it behind them. Where if you get an older pup and you sit it down and start walking around behind it, they start getting you know worried. It's, so yeah. A young pup like that at seven, eight, nine weeks of age is not so overawed. They get used to you moving around while they're still. But um, something I, I do a fair bit of, and uh, you get that bond with them. Just put a name to whatever they're doing then, and that just continues on into work. If they stop when they start work, well, then you put a command to it. Yeah. Always in their head, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you said you obviously like a bit of bite on your dogs for your cattle. How do you do you teach a bite on command? And if so, how do you do that? Well, I I um I don't like too much bite. Um that's the first thing. So I want them to bite when required. Yeah. And I, I that's more my issues is um I want them to bite if and when required. If they're not required to bite, I don't want them to bite. But if they've got stock there that are are running away or then they've got to be ridden to be turned around and they've got to be ridden and the same if they've got to be driven somewhere if they're not moving then they've i want a dog that will bite and i haven't never found that an issue trying to get a dog to bite um uh it's just it's you know if, if it's in them it's in them i think um yeah uh, if they <laughs> lane way work if um, you're having trouble getting a dog to heal, a lot of laneway work helps. And, you know, people stand still, they have to be moved. Our cattle have always been, because they're handled a lot, even today, you know, we don't dare anymore, but our cattle are always well handled, dogged a fair bit. So um, I need a bit more heel bite to move them. And that's yeah. never really been an issue. Very cool. Mate, another question here from Dylan Edwards. What do you like to feed your pups and what age do you get them off the bitch? Yeah, we wean at seven weeks. And um, I just from that seven-week age onwards, I just feed whatever the adults get. Yeah. Um, I always feed a mixture. I never feed one variety. Um, I'm a bit against feeding high-protein um, or high-fat food. Just... Uh, average diet i've never had any health problems um yeah I've, I've never had any any real issues with health in, in the dogs at all over all the time i've been breeding since 77 um and i've just always made sure i stick with a good average you know protein fat content a few scraps and a bit of meat um, it's always worked well for me 
every good dog gets a bit of scratch, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mate, you've mentioned trialling um, a bit tonight, mate. How long have you been trialling? Since the second weekend in March 1981. Oh, I'd like to see what else is about. I'd like to see it compare my dogs against others, I suppose. Um, I like I like the competition. Yep. Um, it's a totally different thing now than what it was when I started. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's I basically I enjoy the competition. And, and, <clears throat> excuse me, just trying to compare my dogs against what else is out there. I was going to say, what makes it so different nowadays? Damn, to a question. <laughs> Just the competition that's there now. Yeah. You know, it, when I had that um, Des, um, there was him and probably one other dog then going around then that would be competitive today in the trial ring. Uh, yeah. the, the standard of dog was not near as high then. Uh, it, and, um yeah, that's the big difference. And obviously you've been around the trial circuit for a while, mate, and you've seen changes. If you could make a change to trialling as it is today, what, what what would that be and why? Oh, I think um, utility trials have got a big place in the future. I, I haven't attended one yet. I was going to get to one last year and didn't get there. Um, I really like that format on paper. I haven't never seen one, but um, trying has just become a little bit too um, distant from the from reality. Um, yep. Cattle are reworked several times. Um, the course is too small. It's more like a yard trial. Um, I know it's. I, I don't see an answer to it at this stage. You know, the numbers, you know, if you go to a, a catalogue trial and there's 100, 150, 200 dogs in the open trial, finding cattle for that top, that number of dogs is just nearly impossible. Yeah. Um, but, and then trying to get that number of dogs through in a weekend yeah. um, becomes another impossibility. So I can understand the way it's gone, but it's lost a bit of reality um, to the general workplace. Um, but it's still, if you go to enough of them, you can still see the good dogs, which dogs shine through week after week or, or in different situations that, you know, somewhere along the line, different pressures will, will come into play and you'll see a weakness in a dog that you didn't think was there or didn't know was there. So from that point of view, it's still you know, very beneficial, which yep. I think is, is the reason we have trials show our dogs off but don't yeah. judge them on one trial yeah absolutely i just like the idea of the utility trial where it you know you're doing a range of different jobs different stock uh couldn't agree more mate i'm sucker for utility trial myself yeah. 
Uh, question here from Nikobi. Why do our trial rules state that we can't inside flank? Um, is it time that we push the envelope and have an inside flank in the trials? We do it at work, whether it be driving or working a mob from distance. Yeah, again, just comes back to the trialing rules as they're set up today. Um, the trial is not, in, you know, in a catalogue trial in most Queensland trials and New South Wales trials, what I've seen, the reason is not big enough for inside flanking and, and doing that type of job. You could set it up, but it's just the way the rule is at the moment. I, you know, I, I've seen the posts on Facebook today along the same lines. Um, it should be done, can be done. And some there's a few trial venues now doing it, particularly in the southern states. We're starting to look at that. And I think it's a good thing. Um, I've started doing it here with dogs, you know, driving more and just for the sake of doing it. And, and when we were daring, we always had to drive cows away down laneways and that type of thing. So, you know, it's used in everyday stock work and there's no reason why it shouldn't be introduced into a trial and whether put into a utility trial first. That's where I see it could be used first, see how it goes. And for those that don't know, can you explain inside flanking? Basically, this, if you're driving stock away from you and you're allowing the dog to come between you and the the, the um, stock, um, crossing from side to side on the stock to shepherd them together while they're driving away. I don't know. I think that would explain it. Yeah, yeah very, very yeah. simple. <laughs> but, and do you have a, I know you, obviously you said you'd like to um, do a bit of utility trialling, but mate, do you have a favourite trial to participate in now? No, I don't. I've had different venues over the years that have been good to me. Yeah. <laughs> I went down to Rapville one year, in 2015, if my dogs were good enough to enter in the Tamworth trial because I wasn't going to pay a $200 entry fee if my dogs weren't up to it. <laughs> went down to Rapville and come away first, second and third. And um, I took the trophy back next year and come, back, come away with first and second. So it was a good venue. Yeah. So left at home, mate. Yeah, but um, and there's been a few places over the years that have been like that. But yeah, I, I don't really have a favourite. Um, just some places, you know, you go there and the stock suit your dogs, and that um, you know, it works well for you. Yeah. Uh, question here from Vic Malashev: Is there a general rule of thumb as to how many dogs you can work on a mob of cattle? No, but um, I just I just think unless you've got, you know, a few hundred head, a couple of dogs should be enough if your cattle are handled. The, I suppose the, the more, the less you've handled your stock, the more dogs you'll need to help control them. Yeah. Just mm -hmm. the, and, you know, the way I would look at that. But, um, you know, I've, I've worked a couple of hundred head here over the last few years um, in, in different mobs and, and couple of hundred head in a mob at different times and you know two dogs is all already you ever use well, awesome mate and mate just back on the trialing there mate what do you feel is your best trialing achievement thus far or a special moment yeah there's a um, few special moments oh. I remember one uh, gained a years ago, I had a, a little bitch called Jenny 
who was Morse's mother. And um, the trials in Queensland then were 10 or 12 minutes in length. And the cattle were pretty rank. And she spent you know, the whole time getting the cattle into the hole. And she ended up backing them in from <laughs> way down the, you know, it was a big ring, full size show ring. And she backed them sort of halfway across the ring into this hole. They wouldn't, you know, after having fight with them for ages. And I thought that was a good achievement myself. I was happy with her. But when I walked off, there was four people lined up at the gate wanting to buy her. <laughs> There's things like that where a dog has done really well and it makes you feel good. Um, come and, you know, I won the Australian Championships in 83. I come second in 91 to Tony McCallum to one of the best dogs I've ever seen. I thought that was a pretty fair achievement too. Yeah. Um, Winning Queensland Championship, representing Queensland State of Origin a number of times. Um, going to a yeah, the lacquer trial there years ago, and um, I had six dogs and five of them final and five of them in places. Yeah, wow. Won both the novice and the open with a father and son. So, Some pretty yeah, impressive um, memories there you got, mate. But I still appreciate that the first one you mentioned was a, the dog that. I think you didn't even finish the trial with, right? With the oh, one back through. Well, once, Just, once you, with the Queensland trial, with the Queensland trial, if you stay out there till the bell goes, you get a score unless you've lost all your points. Yeah. And in those days, the cattle were pretty rough, and you'd often you might go to a trial and only two or three would do a course. But um, you know that, you know that dog got a score. I don't know, remember the final result, but I was just very happy with the way she worked. Yeah. yeah. And do you get nervous at all? If so, how do you handle that? Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> um, I went down to the Tamworth um, trial there the second year. They had a futurity trial, $10,000 at stake. And I went out there with a dog I thought had a fair chance of doing well. And um, she didn't work well. The cattle run muck and she, we come off there with a 76. And... Uh, I rang my wife and said I blew it all. Anyway, they ended up taking a 76. I just got too nervous. That was the problem. I, I didn't think clearly. I didn't operate her correctly. Anyway, I rang my wife and said you know, I blew the chance of 10 grand. <laughs> but the 70, they took the 76 into the second round. And it was the lowest score going in the second round. Then she ran a 91. Yeah, yeah right. Bring an 89 in the final, end up seventh overall. Um, but that's what nerves can do, you know, just don't work quite. Yeah. But as a general rule, I don't really get you know, nerves very often, but that was just a big occasion. And obviously over many years of trialling, mate, what um, what do you see or what, is there something that you see handlers struggle with? No, I think reading, yeah, just reading stock. As a general rule, there's not a lot of, lot of people read stock well and we all make mistakes at times. I've done it, um, but yeah, it's one thing, and and possibly not. Um, I see that schools a lot. Um, a dog does well, and the handler gets excited, so they excite the dog instead of having a calming influence on the dog and trying to keep it calm and and working. That's that's one thing I see a lot of, particularly yeah. in schools. You know now, um, just understanding the effect that what the handler does and the effect that it has on the, how the dog works, behaves, so, which comes back again to stockmanship. 
Yeah. Really stock. What advice would you give to someone wanting to start a career in the livestock agriculture industry? I just get out and, and have a go. Um, lots of opportunity at the moment. Uh, it's probably the best that's been in my lifetime as far as opportunities for young people to get out and have a go at the, any agriculture industry at the moment. Um, find someone that you know, is willing to teach you and, and um, just get in and have a go. Uh, doesn't matter what it is if you don't have a go you won't you know you won't be able to do it and, and i've always told my kids do something you enjoy if you enjoy it you'll do it well yeah no matter what Absolutely. doesn't have to be a fortune in it but um just like daring out know, there's no money in daring but i enjoyed it so mm -hmm. it pretty well for me. that's it well lara bingle said you never never know if you never never go <laughs> <laughs> that was an Aussie thing, wasn't it? About getting around Australia. So uh, that's a great advice there, mate. Mate, yeah. is there someone you'd like to see us sit down and have a chat with on Dog Talk? Oh, I'd love to hear Tony McCallum. Yeah. Um, you know, I said earlier, I, I did spend a bit of time talking to him in the, for two or three years and competing against him, and I learned a lot from him at the time, but it's minute to what could be learned. Um, yeah, he's the one that stands out for me. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I don't yeah, know yeah. it's very hard to achieve, but. <laughs> yeah, that no, might be, mate. Um, but uh, like you said there, he's, he's got a, he's a wealth of knowledge, right? Like, remember reading yeah. up with a quick question, we spent three hours on the phone. Yeah. Um, the other one was possibly John Roston. Yep. Uh, You'll get a very in-depth answers for each question, but you know it's really worth listening to. I've had a bit to do with John over the years. Awesome, cool. Let's write those down, mate. Well, it's um, come to that time of the night, mate. Was there a question that stood out for you tonight? Uh, and they will be in a bag of enduro plus working dog food. Um. There was one about the traveling ability and genetics and um and whether they're related yeah like, um, that was yeah daniel lenzo for that one oh yeah he's on a roll he got he uh he went around a couple of weeks ago as well yeah Danny. yeah oh, well there you go dan change it then <laughs> <laughs> no no you've done it now you got it now so uh dan i've got your details there mate i'll uh they got another bag of um enduro Sorry, was that what I missed? No. Uh, um plus high um food for working dogs coming your way. We're all kangaroo, mate. Stan, uh, for being a guest tonight, you've also got a bag coming your way. So later on, mate, I'll, uh, I'll grab your details. And uh, thanks, Enduro, for that. Thank you. Thanks, We'd Enduro. like to thank you, Stan, for coming on tonight as well. It's been great having you on. And to all of our viewers with the questions, it's um yeah great to see you all jump on each week. And great input again tonight. Some great questions there. Yeah. But we're not going to let you go that easy, Stan. <laughs> One last question. Um, would you rather fight 20 horses the size of ducks or one duck the size of a horse? Yeah, I've been thinking about that. <laughs> I, I reckon I'd just fight the, the one duck the size of a horse. That way I could, I'd be able to watch it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but... Answered very good, mate. And once again, thank you very much for your time tonight, mate. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me on.
But and to all our viewers out there, please remember we learn every day, and the day we stop learning will be a sad one for all of us. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Good night. Cheers, mate. Good night.